Good evening, Redeemer. It's great to be with you in this time of worship. And uh, if you happen to be visiting with us, we're glad you can be part of this time as well. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, one of the ways that we uh, encourage you to do that is to text the word welcome uh, to the number that's in the uh, bulletin, um, just encouraging people to uh, let us know that you were here. Uh, one of the things that Jeff and I love to do is be able to uh, meet, meet up with you um, during the week and get to know you a little bit better, answer whatever questions we can, and uh, hopefully we can do that uh, for you. Uh, also, tonight we have a very special opportunity. We get to hear from our dear brother, uh, Zach Francois, as he will be giving a brief presentation at the conclusion of our service, and uh, just looking forward to hearing updates about where he is in his ministry and where God is uh, working in MAF, and uh, just be sticking around for that. And then this coming Friday, we have our high school blitz, blitzing bowling uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. I think emails have gone out about that for high school, and then uh, we also have on Saturday morning our food pantry, uh, also Saturday morning our middle school youth group, uh, Sky Zone get together, and then in the evening the uh, post-college to 40-ish uh, in uh, fellowship night at the Hansons. So just a few things to highlight for the upcoming week, and uh, let's take this moment and we'll prepare our hearts to become before our God. gather this evening to exalt the holy name of our God and for us to uh, understand truly who he is as he has revealed himself on the pages of holy scripture. The psalmist uh, reminds us of these things in Psalm 52 when he wrote, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. We get to declare together hallelujah as we stand and sing.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you praise this night uh, for all of the ways that you have revealed yourself and for the ways that you are going to be at work in our hearts even this night. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your spirit using it in effective ways uh, to turn us uh, from our own desires, turning us from the ways of our flesh uh, that we seek and default to so quickly, uh, that we would walk in the spirit and that we would know you in a very deeper way Uh, that we are changed and molded and shaped more and more into the image of Christ. Lord, remind us of the depth of our need because we know that in that place, that is where you meet us. We need thee every hour, and we praise you in this hour tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. This evening, I have the privilege of praying for Caleb Nelson and two of the organizations that he's associated with. And that's uh, SMAT, which is uh, the School of Aviation Technology here in Ionia, and also JARS. 
JARS stands for Jungle Aviation and Radio, but now more recently called Relay Services. If you uh, uh, do a little background search on these organizations, you'll find out that JARS has been around for over 75 years. It was founded by a man by the name of Cameron Townsend. Cameron was a, an aviation expert that uh, flew in many, many jungle areas, and he helped start two things. First, he started years before that, back in, I think, 1934, a uh, group called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. This was uh, abbreviated as SIL. This is a group that was uh, uh, developing solutions for Bible translation, literacy, linguistics, and they did research in 96 countries. And in particular, even sign language was used to help translate the Bible for people. One thing I came to realize as I was doing a little background study on this is that it appears that aviation, missionary aviation technology goes hand in hand with linguistics. Because typically when pilots fly into areas where there is a people group that doesn't even speak a known language, they have to first bring translators in or linguists so that they can understand the language of the people they're trying to reach with the gospel. And then many times have to create a written version of that language since they may not have a written version and then translate that into the scriptures and then teach the people how to read and write in their own language and then teach and instruct them from the scriptures that they can leave in their hands. This is a very difficult project. It's not something that's going to happen in a short time. It takes years to do this. When you look at people like Caleb and Zachary, they're entering into a field that is going to require tremendous patience and, and uh, tremendous dedication, too. Uh, in the case of uh, Caleb, Caleb is associated with three different groups. He's associated with a group called Proclaim Aviation. This is a group that helped him raise his funds and provide some of his initial training. He is on loan from Proclaim Aviation that's based in Minnesota right now with uh, SMAT, which is the School of uh, Aviation Technology, and it's based right here in Iconia. So he's on loan with that group. But his ultimate goal is to get with JARS, the Jungle Aviation and Relay Services. They used to plant radios in areas of the jungle so that they could be able to transmit in and out of that area. They now call it Relay because now they're using satellite technology instead of radio. So JARS is a group that will land planes on narrow rivers, on towering mountains. They will outfit boats and vehicles to reach villages, rarely seen by outsiders. They will set up their radios or satellite transmissions now in a rainforest or in the desert. And all of this is to bring the gospel to people in the remotest areas of the world. A statistic that I read that I just found amazing is that there's still 7,000 people groups on this earth that have not been reached. There's over 2,100 languages that have yet to be translated. Now you see the, the size of this task that's at hand. So when you, when you speak of these groups, you have to realize that this is a tremendous undertaking and they depend entirely on God's provision for raising the funds to train these young men to become pilots and to be able to fly on dangerous missions to bring linguists into those areas. 
So tonight I'm going to pray for both Caleb, for Smat, for Jars. And I just ask if you'd join me in that. Father, your word says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And that we're to ask you, the Lord, to harv- for the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Lord, you are the, the one who has sent out um, aviation missionary pilots. Lord, you've sent them into uh, to peril. Some have lost their lives and their determination to try to reach people that have been uh, uh, unreached by the gospel. And Lord, we uh, have seen a film that, uh, that has been shown here of some of those people, Lord, and, uh, and uh, a tremendous efforts that they've gone through and, and what they have endured. This evening, though, Lord, we uh, wish to lift up Caleb to you, Lord. We're grateful, Lord, that he was able to spend an extra year with us here because it's given him the opportunity to become a uh, leader of one of the life groups, to participate with the, uh, the, the uh, children in the, in the uh, middle school as well as high school group. And this has really delighted his heart as well as his participation in the choir. Lord, we thank you that we had this extra year with him. But, Lord, he's soon going to uh, need to uh, move on. He is planning in January to be able to uh, go to North Carolina and take up training with JARS, and we pray that you would open the door for that. Please help JARS as they're uh, trying to finish the uh, uh, reorganizations that have caused his delay there. We pray, God, that uh, you would also enable them, uh, Lord, to, uh, uh, to just be able to finish the work that they've started. Lord, they have been the, they uh, wish to give thanks to, uh, to SMAT because SMAT has been the group that has uh, led most of the uh, mission aviation pilots to JARS and have prepared them well for this mission. We thank you, Lord, that they've been able to do that over these years. We pray for SMAT too because, Lord, this is a school that has, uh, has undergone some changes of its own. They have uh, lost their, their, uh, uh, chief flight instructor and their director of maintenance. And we pray, God, that you would raise up men that would take those positions over and, and ha- enable then the remaining instructor pilots to be able to, to not carry such a uh, difficult workload as they're trying to train other new aviation pilots coming into the school. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would also enable uh, Caleb to be able to attend his pre-field orientation in January of next year, and that you would prepare him, Lord, as he uh, ultimately moves to his uh, desire to be in an area like Papua New Guinea or wherever he would be sent. Lord, you have uh, uh, blessed these groups, and Lord, we are thankful that we as a church can support them. And we ask, God, that you would uh, enable us as well to find others that we could likewise encourage. Father, we thank you for all these things. In your blessed name, amen. If you would, please stand and we will sing. Knowing you.
Please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the state of where we are a member of your family, both individually and corporately, Lord. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us. We thank you that we can come together um, as a couple or as many to enrich other people's life and to reflect the love and adoration that you have for us toward others. We thank you, Lord, for missions and the steadfastness of those in that field and moving forward with the gospel abroad. We thank you, Lord, for our missions committee as well. Lord, we thank you for our women's ministry and the fellowship and the joy that's shared there coming alongside. Lord, we trust that our song and praise will glorify you. We thank you for the preaching of the word and our pastors that do not deviate from the Bible. We thank you for safe travel upon arrival for Dan and Nora and the kids, and things are going well for them. We thank you, Lord, for Redeemer, such a beautiful church as she, to where we can come together as a body of believers to give praise and worship to the King of the universe, the one who hung the stars and gave us the sunshine today. We thank you for the cross and what it signifies and the ultimate sacrifice of a son for our eternal life and sin. Be with us now, Lord, as we rest our hearts and quiet our minds during the prelude in preparation for the word. We give praise and thanks to you. Amen.
Tonight we have the joy of turning in our Bibles to the book of Acts. If you turn there with me to Acts chapter 2, I'll be reading a portion of the description of Pentecost in Acts. While you're turning there, you can find the, the place where we'll be reading in your bulletin. Acts chapter 2, first verses 22 through 24, and then verses 36 through 41. You'll also notice that I reference Westminster Shorter Catechism questions and answers 84 and 85. Now, if you're very attentive, you will note that last week the topic was guided by question answer 86. So we're actually going backwards. The reason for that was the snow day. So we're going back to 84 and 85. It's good truth, just slightly out of order. Again, I'm very thankful to belong to a tradition where we have tried to summarize biblical truth found in a confession. Doesn't mean it's the word of God. It's not. But we believe it's a faithful summary, and I love being guided by these on our Sunday evening services. The reason for that is twofold. One is it helps us as we reaffirm basic biblical truth. It's also helpful for us if we've never heard this before. And so as we go through the Shorter Catechism, we cover those topics that every Christian ought to know. And question 84 asks, what does every sin deserve? The answer is every sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in that which is to come. So question 85 asks, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse that is due for us for our sin? The answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God, which is due to us for our sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life with a diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ is communicated to us with his benefits of redemption. So that phrase, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. I hope you hear that tonight in these verses from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, and then reading through verse 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then moving a few verses later, or further to verses 36 through 41, this continues Peter's words, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
I'm still looking for the day when one of my sermons will have that effect. Let's pray to the Lord and then we'll hear his word. Father, at the very core of the Christian faith is belief in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to know what that means. Not just so that our heads will be informed, but Lord, our hearts need the conviction the catechism talks about. The conviction that leads to repentance and faith in Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would give us that conviction tonight that leads to repentance and faith in Christ. And you would use the words I'm about to say to do that great work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know some of you are coming from a week just like me where you made some mistakes. For example, theoretically of course, imagine that you went to buy donuts for your family and you forgot what kind of muffin your wife really enjoyed. And you brought home the wrong one. Or imagine you finally figure out everything that's on your grocery list. It took you a long time and you walk out the doors and you have this problem. You know what it is? You can't find your car. <laughs> it's just a mistake. It's not that you intended to do something wrong, but you did. Maybe if you scratched far enough under the surface, you would have thought to yourself, I should have done a better job of just remembering. I was a bit negligent there, but it's not a serious mistake, you say. If you go a little bit further, maybe you can remember during this previous week something that was a bit more serious. Imagine, for example, that you're in a hurry to leave work on Friday afternoon and you back your vehicle into your boss's truck. And you see it in your rear view mirror, but rather stopping and going back into the office, you look around and no one else has seen. And you head almost all the way home before you think to yourself, I really need to go back and tell him what happened. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? And you can sense in that story that little bit of conviction for the sin that you have committed. But let me even go one layer deeper into your heart. Maybe there's a sin that you struggle with and you have for a long time. Maybe it's being cutting toward other people. Maybe it's a lack of generosity. Maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's a lust. Whatever it is, it's something that you struggled with for a long, long time. And you've said to yourself over and over, there's going to come to a point where I'm going to stop doing this. I'm just going to stop. And yet you find yourself struggling with that same thing over and over and over again. Tonight is the night, I hope, based on these verses from Acts chapter 2, that each of us will not only understand what it means to be convicted of our sin, maybe tonight is also the moment in which the Lord works that conviction of your sin for the thing that you might struggle with. Because to be honest with you, friends, this sermon is not, first of all, just about truth. It is about truth. It is about real truth, perhaps the greatest truth the world needs to know. That is, if we are at enmity with God and there's peace in Jesus Christ. It's the truth we all need to know. But it's designed for one step further than that. That not just your head would be informed, but you would feel in the very core of your being that first necessary step to faith in Jesus Christ that is what the catechism refers to as conviction that leads to repentance and therefore to faith. 
Maybe you'll feel that for the first time. Maybe to remind you in great thanksgiving for where the Lord has brought you to already. But I want you to think about two very core words that come in this passage, these verses that I read. The words are conviction and repentance. And what I want you to do is to celebrate your conviction, that conviction of sin, and to respond to that conviction with repentance. Let me show you in these words from Acts chapter 2 how that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. In order for you to understand this comes from the Word of God, I need to introduce you or sort of insert us into the middle of what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It is Pentecost. Maybe you know that great story, maybe you don't. I'd love to run through it again. Even if you know it, try to pay good attention because it's such a fascinating story. By this point in the Bible, Jesus has lived and died and ascended. And he promised that after he ascended, he would send, he said, a helper or an advocate after him. And this advocate would lead us into the truth. He said that is his spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, that's what we're reading about, the fulfillment of that promise that Jesus would be with you always to the very end of the age, and he would be with you by the Spirit that he would send. This is Acts chapter 2. His Spirit is here. And our God chooses to send the Spirit at one of the great Old Testament agricultural feasts. It was a feast of Pentecost. And because it was a great feast, there were people from all over in Jerusalem, God-fearers from all over the known world, along with the Jews from all the areas in Israel. And it is during this festival, you might look there in verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2, that we are told that the disciples of Christ, whom at this moment in history numbered about 120 as far as we can tell, they are meeting together in a building. And suddenly we read in the scriptures, there was a sound of a great and mighty rushing wind, and there were tongues of fire, small flames. Imagine we have a big lighter, and it flicks on. There was something sort of like that that appeared above the heads of those disciples, those 120 disciples there in that room. These are all indications that God is giving us that the promise that Jesus made is coming true. The Spirit has arrived. In this description of the rushing wind and the flame of fire, these are all filled with Old Testament overtones. These are all indications that the long story of redemption has not only been focused in Jesus Christ while he was on earth, but now the work of Jesus Christ is continuing. You might remember all the way at the beginning of the scriptures, we read about the Spirit of God coming as the breath of God upon the creation Or you might know the Shekinah cloud of glory that led the Israelites through, out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the 40 years in the desert. This was the Shekinah glory, the fire of God that led them. Now the fire of God in small bits is being placed upon the head of his disciples. And I want you to note something that's almost incidental to this story The sound of the wind, this sound in verse 6, draws a huge crowd of people, all those who were there for Pentecost. And we find out in verse 41 that there were thousands of people who were drawn to the place where the disciples were when they hear the wind and they see the tongues of fire. Now all that stands as background. 
When all of this is happening, the Apostle Peter stands up and on behalf of all of the other apostles explains what is happening. And in order to understand what is happening, Peter says you must understand who Jesus is. Peter takes the crowd back to the prophet Joel, who told about a great time when great wonders would come. Verse 21 records really repeats what Joel says. I will pour out my spirit in all flesh, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is Old Testament promise fulfilled in Jesus, repeated here. Peter then connects the signs and wonders that Jesus did on earth with the promise fulfilled that Jesus is actually the Messiah. He is the one God sent to die for his people. You don't believe it? Look at what Jesus did. Who could do this but the Messiah? But then Peter says, although Jesus was put to death, he rose again according to the prophecy of God. He has ascended, and from there he has sent his spirit. As he says to the crowd, all of you can clearly see, the spirit has come. And listen carefully then to the conclusion of what Peter says to the crowd about how great Jesus is. Peter says these words. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now against all of this history, Old Testament leading up to Jesus, the life of Jesus himself, Peter draws to conclusion an explanation not only of what's happening on Pentecost, But he draws to conclusion his summary about the life of Jesus that explains why the Spirit has come with these words. You crucified Jesus. Now if you just listen to this, here were the crowds. You might think to yourself, how very impolite. Peter's making an accusation to the Jewish people that they were the ones who put Jesus to death. Why would Peter do that? How was it possible for him to do that? It is entirely likely that some of those who were listening to the words of Peter were actually at Jesus' crucifixion. And he's pointing this out to them. You put the Messiah to death. But it also is true that in an important sense, Peter is pointing to the reason why every person might be convicted before the God of the universe. These Israelites who put Jesus to death did so because they did not acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's why they put him to death. Peter said if you would have known who Jesus was, you would have never imagined to put Jesus to death. And that same explanation of rebellion against God applies to everyone, whether we were literally there before Pontius Pilate chanting, crucify him, crucify him. At the very heart of our rebellion, our human rebellion against God, is an unwillingness to acknowledge God as God, and therefore no sense of why we would ever trust in Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is a universal question that hangs not only above this passage and these words that Peter speaks in verse 21, but also forms a question that we must also consider here tonight. And that is, do we acknowledge Jesus as God's answer to our sin, that he alone can bridge the distance between us and our Creator? 
Can Jesus, does Jesus actually do that? That question applies whether you're Jewish in background or not. As long as you are human, you're here breathing, your mind is functioning, there's life in your body, this question applies to you as it does to me. Do we acknowledge that we are sinners and there is no hope except in Jesus Christ? That we are called, really we are driven to the cross of Jesus Christ because there is nowhere else we can turn. There is no one who can do to us what Jesus is able to do. He can give us peace with our created God. Do we look to him for our hope? That's the question Peter is posing to them and also to us here tonight. Now, this is all a setup in order to get to this question. How are we supposed to respond to that? How are we supposed to respond? When the Jews heard Peter's words and the question he was posing, it says, and I want you to hear this, it says they were cut to the hearts. That means they were strongly convicted of their sin and their need for Jesus. Cut to the heart does not literally mean that their hearts were sliced open and you could see the darkness that was in there. It means that it went to the very heart of who they are, the very core of who they were. It was conviction at the deepest possible level. It was not, oh, I've been caught, I'm sorry, let's forget about it and move on. This is us standing before the God of the universe and realizing what we have done. And it is saying against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sights. God, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against you and failed to acknowledge Jesus Christ, to trust in him. I believed in myself more than Jesus. I have ignored my sinful condition. And now in the light of who you are and I see the greatness of Jesus, I am led to an absolute position of humility. Simple question I have for you tonight is, do you ever experience that? Do you? I'm not suggesting that everyone's cut to the heart looks exactly the same. Some of us are very reticent to show our emotions, and in the inside we are cut to the heart, and outside there's no expression. But ordinarily for human beings, when we are cut to the heart, we're not only humble in our hearts, but there's a certain reaction that goes with it. It's the reaction of David. We're in Psalm 32 and 51. He is humbled before the Lord in an obvious way. There's no reservation. There's no holding back. There's no keeping part of his heart for himself. No, he says, I am deeply convicted of my sin. You see me as I truly am. There's no faking it before you, God. I understand what you see. Again, I ask you, are you ever convicted in this way? Or do you live your life hoping that as long as others don't see what's really going on in your heart, you'll be good enough? 
One of the most important things the men in prison taught me when I did prison ministry there is the nature of true repentance. I went into that prison thinking, I am a pastor who has my life together. I've never been convicted of anything outside of a speeding ticket. I'm going to go there and show them a few things. And you know what I realized? Is that many of the men who were in prison had a far greater sense of their conviction before the Lord than I'd ever realized. Some of the greatest sins I struggled with, these men showed me how to humble myself before the Lord. They were my teachers in the school of conviction of sin. I went in there to tell them, essentially, be better people. Trust in Jesus, but be better people. And they said to me, but do you know the depth of your sin? Do you know how awful it is that we appear before God and the fact that you are well-groomed with good clothes and very appealing breath does not commend you to the Lord? I'd say the same thing to you tonight. There's nothing naturally in our sinful condition that appeals to us, appeals to our God about us. In this moment, I want you to think about what could be happening in your own heart. The cut to the heart happens to them in this passage. It is an expression, as I've said, with a powerful picture. It is God poking at that spot, not allowing them or you to ignore it, even giving you a restlessness until you see what is really there. If I can just put it this way, the work of Jesus Christ by his spirit in this passage is not just in the presentation of the sermon, it is in the reaction to the sermon where these folks were cut to the heart. That's God's grace to us. That he would not leave us in a place where we look outwardly whole but are corrupt in the inside. Which leads me to ask this question again. As you're listening to me explain this, are you convicted? Are you cut to the heart? Am I sensing my own natural rebellion against the God of the universe that cannot be made right apart from Jesus Christ? Have I wrestled with the fact that I have not looked to Jesus as I could if I have not been convicted of my sin? I don't mean in any way to trouble those of us with a soft conscience. Some of us have been raised in circumstances where we were told you're never, you're never going to repent enough. In fact, what's commendable is beating yourself up over and over and over. As long as you beat yourself up more, then you're doing what you're supposed to do. I'm not encouraging that. That in itself is a kind of perverse looking to your own action in order to be made right. I'm not commending that at all. This conviction of sin does not lead you to become more and more introspective. It leads you to become more dependent upon Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's a huge difference. He's not saying if you only repent enough, finally you'll be good enough. It is to say, I have only what God has given me. That is a conviction of my sin and a trust in Jesus Christ. And as question 86 says, what I'm called to do is rest and rely upon Jesus Christ. If in some way the Lord is being overt with you tonight, be thankful for that. 
You could be in many, many other places tonight doing all kinds of things. But you're here. God has brought you here. God has given you this sermon to listen to. And perhaps God has convicted you as he often convicts me. And he prompts us to respond. And that according to the scriptures is the very beginning of life in Christ. At least as we experience it. That we have a heart that is convicted of our sin because we see ourselves before God as he truly is. Let me tell you what difference this makes. The first thing I want you to note is that the conviction that Peter's talking about is not, first of all, about you doing more. It is about you being honest and looking to Christ. The second thing I want you to note is that this gift is genuinely a gift. When we sense this conviction in our hearts, a response should be, thank you, Father, for showing me how much I need Jesus. If you've been in a place in your life where you were searching over and over and over, trying to find the key, the place for peace, where finally things will be made right, and then the Lord brings you to the end of yourself where you have to look into the darkness of your own heart, when he brings you to that point of conviction, you know how bright the beauty of Jesus Christ is in that moment. And I'm deeply grateful myself, and I hope you would affirm this in your own life as well, that you are thankful that God has not left you where you could be. Even if you are, as I was often in my life, a very well-put-together person, people said, wow, he is such a good young man, even though my heart was so corrupt and I was struggling so deeply with sin. As the Lord has brought me to conviction, I pray he would you as well. Not that he brings that to you one time and it's done, but it sets us on a life where we first have deep conviction looking to Christ, and then we come more and more to depend on him. There are small points of conviction after that. Do you not have that in your life? We are sort of walking away, and the Lord reads some passage of Scripture to your heart, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. I have not been obeying the Lord in that place Let me turn to Jesus. He will forgive. There's a point of course correction. That's the kindness of the Lord to us. It also leaves us in a place, and I just want to emphasize this, when we sense that conviction in our hearts, it leaves us in a place where we no longer have to guess what the Lord is doing. You see, it is the Lord who causes us to hear It is up to him to keep our ears open. It rests on him to continue to hold us. So that what Jesus said in John 6 verse 39 is absolutely true. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's God's truth. And what begins that moment of conviction, God promises that it will remain true. He will hold you and keep you. Which brings me to the second word that I want you to hear, and I'm going to be more brief about this. It was conviction as well as repentance. It is God who opens our hearts to hear, to believe. 
And in this passage, we see the response of these people when God opened their heart, cut them to their very heart, and they responded. How did they respond? First, it says in verse 38, they repented. That is, they turned away from themselves and their pattern of life, and they turned to the Jesus that Peter was proclaiming. The moment when you turn from conviction to repentance, it's hard to know. They fit so well together. When you're convicted of your sin and you see yourself before a holy God, you have every desire to turn away from the way that you were before. Maybe it's just small ways. Maybe it's grand ways. You may have to struggle with some of the sins that are close to your heart for a long time. But when I tell you that the Christian life is a life of repentance, I'm not simply making that up. A reformed forefathers said do you want to summarize what the christian life is like it is looking to jesus and repenting as a lifestyle it is as the prayer group prayed on wednesday night help us to become a church to become a church that is a church that repents well that is characterized by its repentance. It's not because we're looking to beat ourselves up. It is because in a repentance, we point to the greatness of Jesus. We want Jesus to be glorified, for him to be shown that all for all that he is. And the way that God shows Jesus for all that he is is in the hearts and the lives of people who are turning away from themselves to him. What a tremendous testimony that is. If you are a parent with children, no, longer, no matter how old those children are, the greatest gift you can give to your children is to give them an example of repentance and turning to Jesus. That is a far greater gift than paying for their college education or helping them buy their first house. Even though, even though those things are wonderful, and if you have the ability to do it, go for it. But at the very core of what you're hoping for your children, that you're hoping will happen in your friends, in your community, in this church, is the very thing that we see the Israelites doing in this passage, being cut to the heart and repenting in order to believe in Jesus. Every true believer will want to know what God says will more and more hate what God hates and want more and more to love what God loves. Again, a very direct question for you tonight. Does that define who you are? I know it's uneven. It's uneven in my life. Not that you should try to be like me. Let me tell you, that's not what you're aiming for. Only I'm familiar with that struggle. It's a real struggle. I'm not saying you listen to Peter's words and you say, oh, I'm cut to the heart, I repent, done with the struggle. What I'm saying is you're just starting You're just starting that life of repentance, but may it characterize your life. Does it? Someday when your children come to this building or another like it, and they're asked to testify about what their mom or dad was like, when your closest friend is asked to testify what you are like, would they say, my mom or dad, my friend, was a person who loved Jesus Christ and lived a life of repentance. In order to encourage that, we see in these verses that these Christians joined a body of believers. I noted this morning in the introduction to our service that what characterizes our church, I pray, is a church that loves the truth of God's word, that points us to Jesus, and loves the fellowship of God's people because apart from that, you cannot grow as a disciple. That's exactly what we see here. Conviction that leads to repentance 
that means they become part of a body of repenters called the church. Tonight as I read this passage with you and as I think about it, meditate on it, it's hard for me to overstate how significant this is. The reason it's found at this critical point in the shorter catechism is because it lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. There are all kinds of things that people say ought to characterize a follower of Christ. Be a good person, show up at church, contribute liberally, be generous with others. All those things are great. But if you want to reduce it to the most essential characteristics of a follower of Christ, it is this. And this is what I'm commending to you, not only for your head, but also your heart. That you're deeply convicted of your sin. That you look to Jesus for your hope. And you lead a life of repentance in a community of believers. That's what the Lord is not only telling you tonight, but is asking you to deeply consider. Would you join me in prayer? Father, so much of what we read in your word leads us to ponder whoever we are with you. And again, it is not by desire, because I know it is not your desire, Father, for those of us with the tender conscience to lead us to doubt and to wonder if we've repented well enough. But the greater share of us, and what is true for the vast majority of people in our world, for those of us who were not raised in those places, that would lead to those tender consciences. Father, what is true for most of us is not that our consciences are too tender, but that they're hard. And we try to excuse our sin. We try to look past it, beyond it. And if you've never brought us tonight to that point of deep conviction and looking to Jesus, to Christ for our hope, if you've never brought us to a point where we've started that walk with Jesus, then I pray that you would do that tonight. And Lord, if you have done that, we give you deep thanks. We rejoice over it, Lord, that we are your workmanship. But then we also pray, as Peter indicates that the Israelites did, the Jews did in this passage, that you would continue to give us that heart of repentance. That instead of proclaiming how great we are and how righteous our judgments are, we would demonstrate to those around us a heart that is quick to repent and to show the greatness of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Lord, I pray along with our group that prays every Wednesday night that you would make us a congregation that is characterized by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is what we ask as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me to sing?
After the benediction dexology, as you heard at the beginning, we're going to ask Zach to come forward. If you need to leave, certainly understand that. should be about a 15-minute presentation with an opportunity to ask him questions following that presentation in the back. Receive this blessing from the Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. Go in peace. Amen. All right, can you guys hear me well at this level? Is that good? Okay. Um, before I begin, I would like to start with a familiar verse. It's actually John 3.16, but in Haitian Creole. God said, Parce que si tellement les hommes, Tout monde qui va mettre confiance dans lui, pas perdre la vie. Au contraire, il y a la vie qui pas jamais fini. You see, there's a great portion of humankind that have never heard our Father's word in their mother tongue. And there are those who have had such blessings, but like Paul so well spoke about, it's been corrupted. Greetings again. My name is Zachary Francois, and I'm a 27-year-old missionary pilot mechanic serving the Lord with MAF in my home country, Haiti. MAF is a nonprofit organization that was started in 1945 by a group of former World War II pilots that saw aviation as a way to share love and unity instead of fear and destructions. Therefore, we have found countless ways to bring the love of Christ to the ends of the earth. That said, our vision is to see isolated people changed by the love of Christ, and our mission is to serve together to bring help, hope, and healing through aviation. We do this by operating the world's largest private fleet of light aircraft. A total of 33 aircrafts are in service. We also partner with over 430 organizations across the globe and serve thousands of individual doctors, missionaries, pastors, and aid workers. Some of the members of this congregation are in those numbers. But beyond that, our aircrafts are reaching the ends of the earth. MF is, in fact, by destination serve, the world's fourth largest airline. Now, that goes to show the amount of people that we're able to reach 
but there are a million more out there that have never been reached. And I get to serve them in Haiti, where MF has been operating since 1986, providing safe and reliable transportation for the local and non-local churches, and sometimes disasters, because Haiti have a love relationship with disasters, it seems like. You guys want to see one of our planes taking off? All right. Let's start the video. So if you want to pay close attention to kind of the front portion of the plane, something is about to cross the runway. And unfortunately, it is a common practice for that to happen. And right about there. <laughs> he was, one, committed for takeoff. Two, he did not have enough speed to take off at that point. So that's why when he pitched up, he had to level off afterwards and obviously catch his breath from what just happened. <laughs> you guys are probably wondering what that was. Well, it was a donkey. <laughs> okay, we could go back to the presentation now. <laughs> so, let's see if this works. There you go. Nope. Maybe. There you go. This airstrip, it's. And it's, it belongs to the Lemuel Ministry. It's actually in the top of the screen there, that little piece of dirt road. That's the airstrip in question. Um, the Lemuel Ministry is one of the many ministries that we partner with in Haiti and try and serve. What they do specifically themselves is that they do pastoral training. So they bring individuals in, teach them the gospel, equip them with the right tools and finances and so on, and send them out so they could share the gospel. And periodically they bring them back in um, to just check up on them. They also were about to start a school, and this happened to their shipment. I think this is still on. There we go. So this is a container. It had supplies for their pastoral program and their school, but they also needed the container to build a new classroom, I believe. Um, and so the guy drove about 123 miles for 10 hours, and at dawn, the road collapsed under him. Now, the God story about that is that the villagers in that area were willing to go inside the container, unloaded everything, they tied some road and got some man on the other side and were able to get it back on the road, reloaded everything, and the container was able to make it to its final destination. Now, unfortunately, this situation is just not, it's not unique to this portion of Haiti, but rather the, entire, the entirety of Haiti once you step outside the capital. And most of the programs we actually fly in So, since the last time I was here in Michigan, I did miss Michigan, I did miss the congregation, I was going through flight training. And in August of 2022, through many prayers and support from this church, I was able to graduate from the flight program at SMAT. Caleb Nelson was one of my instructors. <laughs> Immediately after graduation, I returned straight back to Haiti, and within about a week or so, I was back in the hangar working as a maintenance specialist for MAF. Um, and just maintaining God's airplanes, doing to the best, maintaining God's airplanes to the best of my abilities, because it is a blessing to be able to look at an airplane, inspect it, and find something that's wrong and fix it. That way, when a missionary flies in it, 
he or she knows that that airplane has been inspected safely and that she does not have to worry about something breaking. Now, while I was working as a mechanic in Haiti, I had to get some flight hours. What I mean by flight hours is that when I graduated from SMAT, I did not have enough flight hours in order to take the MAF pilot test, which would determine if I'm able to become a pilot for MAF. So as I was working as an aircraft maintenance specialist for MAF, I was trying to gain these hours. And one of the blessings God provided was the ability to fly a couple planes for MAF, either from Idaho to Florida or Haiti to Idaho. In this case, I was able to fly this aircraft, Stationary Hotel Hotel Lima Lima Sierra, from Nampa, Idaho, or headquarters, all the way to Haiti. And I must say, quick pause, your country is absolutely beautiful. From the desert land of Idaho, the Rocky Mountains, into the Texas land, Grand Canyon, down to the flatlands of Florida, it's quite a sight to see. The trip took about five days, and it was about close to 30 hours of flying. And what was neat about the U.S. is the amount of Christians that you guys have in this country allowed us to visit many churches when we stopped for fuel. And one of those churches was Eric Hausler's church in Naples. So we stopped there for about an hour or so. He came out with some folks from the congregation, and they were able to come around to the plane and prayed. And that was very special for us to see that. Now... Throughout all of those, I was able to get all my hours in, and in April of 2023, I passed the MF flight test and was accepted into the organization as a pilot, making me their first Haitian pilot mechanic. Throughout all of this journey, I learned a couple things. And the main thing is that mission aviation is risky. Sharing the gospel in itself is risky, and it requires sacrifices. To best summarize this, I'm going to quote Scott Brenner, president of Conceum Security. They're a security, private security firm, that Christian private security firm that some Christian organization use. He said that the gospel demands risk, and we have to be wise on how we steward and manage that risk. But we also have to be willing to take those risks in order for God to be glorified. You see, in October of 2022, so right after I left Michigan, the gang violence in Port Prince was growing. And it got to the point where MAF had to make the hard call to move his families, the wives and children, outside of the capital back to the U.S. And us men, in order to keep the program running and keep our flying operations going, we decided to move into the hangar. Now, it was hard. At first, I must say, at first it was fun. The first two weeks it was fun. It was camping at the hangar. We're guys. But it became hard um, because for many reasons, you're separated from your families, you're sleeping at work, sleep was not the greatest, food was not the greatest. But at the same time, we were flying the most because people needed our help. One day, we decided that we would only fly passengers. What I mean by passengers is individuals who wanted to go see a family member, a mom wanted to go see a son, a son wanted to go see a mom. We flew seven flights that day and flew 91 souls in one day. But we're grateful that God allowed us to be able to do that. Now, as we were going through these motions, we did not foresee what was about to come. Because from January through March 2023, Haiti, I may say the poor prince, the capital, recorded more deaths than Ukraine every single month. May I remind you, Ukraine is at war with Russia. 
So as we're sleeping in the hangar, we'll go fly out during the day, and we'll meet our missionaries and help them out, and life is good out there. But we'll come back, and at night, as we're sleeping, you can hear the gunshot. You could see the smokes from the fighting. So it was getting hard on us. Aviation is a sector that is risky and that requires a lot of care because if we make a mistake, people could lose their life. So MF leadership decided to make the hard decision to stop all flight operations in Haiti. And so in April, we had to stop all of our flight operations for a full year. We're hoping to start flying again in April of this year. It was hard on us. It was hard on the families. But we knew that God would use this to further his kingdom, to further our imprint in the country, to allow us to serve longer and deeper and allow us to build more relationships with the folks around us. And he did. But it still hurt us. The picture above was taken in Kansas City as we're flying three out of four of our airplanes out of Haiti. We stopped to meet up with a pastor who came out and prayed for us. This picture is particularly hard because our airplanes do not belong in the city jungle. It's a beautiful picture, don't get me wrong. I like it, but it's wrong. Our airplanes belong in the Congolese jungle, the Indonesian jungle, or in Haiti. So you could picture as humans, as we're going through all this, we had questions for God. One of the questions is, Father, how are you going to use this so the next generation could know what you have been doing? Or are you going to share some of the stories that we have seen with others? And he allowed us to witness this one. About a week before our flight operations came to a halt, we got a phone call from a lady named Elen. Elen is a 32-year-old single lady who adopted 10 kids, and she's raising them. Now, she had left the country a few months prior to go raise support so that she could buy a house up in Cap Haitian, the northern part of Haiti, because she's like, the gang violence is going to grow, and I need to move my kids out. But she was not able to come back to take the kids out, so she called us. She's like, hey, I have 10 girls, 45 minutes north of Port-au-Prince. Can you help us? We're like, yeah. If you could, we told her, if you could get the girls to the island of Lagunar, we have a dirt airstrip there. I believe some of the members of this congregation have been to that airstrip. We could fly the girls out for you to Cap Haitian. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll try and do that. So picture 10 girls from six to 10 year old-ish. They got on a, they got on a sailing boat, took about three hours. They don't know how to swim, never left their area, and they made it to this island, new home. They don't know where they are going. The next morning when we showed up, has the Haitian on the plane, I went up to them, like, hey, hi, you're going to see Ellen. They looked at me, like, totally confused, like, who are you? What are you talking about? And I get it. They were lost and, and confused. And plus, there's a plane. They don't know where we're going. So because of those 10 girls and two adults, we decided to do two flights. So we put the first five girls in, and we decided to, when we took off for Cap Haitian, it's a 45-minute flight. Now, the key thing about Cap Haitian that makes the story so unique is that Cap Haitian is like Spirit Airline. They charge you for everything. The carts, directions sometimes. If they can, they will. And we don't go there that often because there's a commercial flight from Port-au-Prince to Cap. So we don't know the airport that well. So as we landed up in Cap, nobody came out to help us, of course. So we got out. I took the five girls since I could speak the language. And 
Dan, the other pilot, was going to handle the luggages. And so once I was done with the girls, I could come back and help him with the other luggages. So I'm walking across the ramp trying to figure out the exit door. Cannot find it. I actually got yelled at because I entered the wrong door. And then finally I found the door, and now I'm inside this terminal building. And I'm scanning for her. I don't know what she looks like. So I'm scanning, 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 scanning. And finally, the girls go sprinting down. So I run after them, and they're screaming, Mom. So I could tell they've seen her somewhere. And then behind me is airport security chasing me also. So you could picture the scene at the airport. What they had seen was Elaine was outside. And they went to the door and just jumped on her and piled her down. It was very neat to see that. But it was on the second flight that God showed us and answered one of the questions we were asking him. We flew back to the island to pick up the second group of girls. Now, in their case, we told them, hey, the first group made it. They're like, nope, you took them away and did not bring them back. (laughs) So we put them inside the plane and we took off again. But the difference this time is when we landed up in CAP, people came out to help us. I did not lift a single bag. We told them why. Like, we see what God is doing and we want to be a part of that because we're going to tell our neighbors and our friends about that. Now, we got a full escort from the ramp to the inside the airport. And obviously, the girls ran this time also. And they jumped on Elaine again. But this time, nobody ran after them at, at the airport because we knew where they were going. And we're grateful to be able to witness that. So on the flight back, Dan and I were chatting, and we came up with this verse, Psalm 145.4, and we do believe that one generation shall command your works to another and shall declare your mighty act. So we do believe these girls, they will tell what God did for them, just like I'm telling you guys what God did. Now, before I left to come to Michigan, I bumped into Elin at the small airport. She told me the girls are doing great. They're going to an American curriculum school, which has a special ed program. So if you notice, the oldest one's up there. They're in first grade. So that will be able to help them go through school. They're also learning how to swim, which is very important. <laughs> Lastly, to finish, um, we got to see God work through us around the airport. Because we were not flying, we got to hang out in several government offices, and which led to this picture, which is at the end of December, we were able to hold a very important meeting with one of the government offices. They brought 23 government officials to the meeting against just us four. Um, out of that meeting came a lot of great, great things, including the airstrip in Miyagwen. We'll be trying to get that certified. But it was a lot of great things on how MAF could use over 75 years of experience to help the Haitian aviation authorities better protect the aviation sector, better prepare, and better build airstrips. So we'll be sharing our knowledges with them in a way that we've never been able to do that before. So the reason why I'm here in Michigan is um, support raising. And just like our plane is helping, helped Elin help these girls, your support is what keeps us going. It could be a simple text message saying, hey, how are you doing? simple call or a prayer, which matters a lot, or in some cases, financial support also. 
So to end, I'd like to invite you guys to consider partnering with me and my MF ministry in Haiti as we continue to try to change the ending of so many isolated people out there. As a single guy at MAF, I'm required to raise a fixed amount every single month. And they asked me to raise 7700 Now, I did tell them that's quite high, but they told me that they have over 200 missionaries raising that amount and more if you're married every single month. And it's just a testimony of how great and powerful and faithful our Father is. So after the service, I'll be available for more questions and ways that you guys could join me in my ministry. Thank you. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we have seen these pictures and we have prayed for Zach so often, and we rejoice in the way that you've cared for him, the way that you continue to use him, and we pray, Lord, with great joy for how you will use him in the future. We are honored that we get to see part of this and support him in his work, and we pray that every blessing would be poured out upon him, that he would raise the funds necessary that if you'd use him in order for the gospel to spread in very clear and powerful ways. And we are even bold enough to ask you, Lord, that through the work of MAF and other organizations like them, that one day Haiti would be a changed country where the gospel of Jesus Christ has so permeated the culture that what Isaiah prophesies where the swords and where the spears are turned into instruments of productivity, Lord, we pray that we would live to see that day. Father, we are bold enough to ask this because we believe in the power of Jesus Christ in whom we pray. Amen.